Want to know why your interiors or images don't look like the ones you see on your favorite social media feeds? What if I said I could let you know and show you what's missing and how to transform your spaces with clarity and confidence? The truth is creating beautiful interiors is simple when you know the right strategies, but most people go about it the wrong way. This is why I created the Styling Masterclass. It's the only program that simplifies the art and science of styling, giving you the clarity and confidence to take your interiors to the next level and attract your dream customers or clients so you can make your creative dreams finally possible. This is for you if you're an interior designer or photographer, have an Airbnb, a homeware shop or e-commerce business, and you want your interiors to look like the ones you see in your favorite books, magazines or Instagram accounts. Come learn how to style using my signature method so you can elevate any interior and create compelling imagery, which is your most effective marketing tool if you're selling a product or service in the world of interiors. Any successful business owner knows that styling is your secret weapon to cut through the visual noise, stand out from the crowd and grow your business. Styling is something that you don't want to leave to chance. In today's world, images are everything. This is why leading interior designers and architects always use stylists to finesse their spaces for photography to make sure they've got incredible imagery that they can use for their socials and website. Come learn how to make styling not only an essential element, an easy way to create content for your socials and website, but learn how it can propel the growth of your creative business. If you're serious about creating beautiful interiors and a business you love without struggling in obscurity, this is the program for you. I'm going to share my process and give insights that you're not going to get anywhere else because I've been working as a professional interior stylist for the past 15 years. The Styling Masterclass will give you that clarity and confidence you need to take action and connect with your dream customer or client so you can make your creative dreams possible. Go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level to learn more and enroll now. Enrollments are open for only a short time. So please, if you're interested and you're ready to take your interiors to the next level, go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level. I'm Natalie Walton and this is Imprint, a podcast about creating a home and life you love. Each week, I'm here to share with you some of the biggest lessons I've learned during my career and life. Some of them I wish I'd learned a lot sooner because they would have saved me a huge amount of time, stress, and even money. Many of these ideas could have accelerated my journey as a creative and business owner. I also feature interviews with inspiring creatives, entrepreneurs, and experts to help you focus on what's most important in your life. Today, I'm going to interview interior designer Simone Matthews. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to thank you for all of your beautiful comments and feedback on this podcast. If you haven't done so already, it would mean so much if you could please subscribe, rate and review wherever you're listening to the podcast today. It really does help other like-minded creatives out there find this content and help them on their journey. Okay, back to today's episode. Hello everyone, I hope you're all well. I have been busy this week creating some content for an exciting uh, product that I've created for Imprint House, my online shop. We are going to launch a newspaper called Imprint Journal. And so we've had a couple of photo shoots, uh, a couple of different locations. So I can't wait to share that with you. Look out for it at imprinthouse.net. In the meantime, I have also been interviewing a few inspiring creatives before the year wraps up. And I'm very excited to share this interview with Simone, who I came into contact with a few years ago now. I think it was when I was compiling a feature for Country Style magazine, but it was certainly in relation to her project, Soul of Gerangong, which is an incredible project that she worked on and she will go into more detail in the interview, but then I've been following her journey since then. And I saw that she was actually up in Byron Bay and we had been speaking about meeting up to do an interview. 
And I thought, okay, let's do it. Let's do it now. So she was actually staying in the same area where I live, which is Binabara, which is just outside of Bangalore. And I'm a big believer that sometimes you've just got to strike while the iron is hot and take the opportunities that you get that are right in front of you. So I did. And we met up and it was so lovely to hear her journey and obviously meet her as well and uh, chat through a few things. So I hope that you enjoy listening to this interview with Simone and learning more about her creative journey. Hello, Simone. Thank you so much for welcoming me into this space. It's not actually your home. You're on holiday in Byron Bay or the area. And I had to take the opportunity to interview you. We'd been speaking about trying to organize something. So this seemed like the great chance to do it. Um, so thank you for taking time out of your day. So I've got a few questions for you and we just want to like, I guess, start at the beginning about a little bit about your childhood um, and, you know, were you creative? Is that something that was a thread in your childhood or what kind of, um, of those early years did you have? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for coming to my holiday property that's not mine, but gorgeous place, which I can't believe that you call this home. It is stunning. But yeah, to my childhood, I would say I was not creative at all. Like I was the child who like art drawing. I was like, no, I did not like that at all. I remember when like if I fast forward to high school years, I think I was literally the only person who didn't do art at school. So I would more describe myself as more like an organized child. And I fall into like I'm the youngest of four girls. So I think I was always more ahead of my times. I was always wanting to be like them and be older. So I think I just had like this drive in me. So that kind of creative path, I I fought it, but then when I think about it from a different angle, I was always the child who'd be rearranging her bedroom. I'd be saving up my pocket money to go buy new furniture or I'd be finding old pieces on the side of the road and be painting them to bring them in my room. So there was kind of like, I would say not creative, but then when I look in a different way, there was definitely kind of those avenues there. And so what about then when you kind of got to those high school years where you start to have to think about what am I going to do when I leave school? What were your thoughts then? Did you have any idea? Yeah, you know what? Again, it always kind of comes back to my sisters because they were really like picked all the academic pathways and they knew what they wanted to do. So they did like the physics and the chemistry and the math. And I remember going into high school like as if, I didn't have a care in the world. Like there was never a pressure on me to feel like I had to succeed or have something I had to do, maybe because I always kind of fell back and thought someone would always catch me. So when I went to high school, I was like, I'm going to pick subjects that I just love, that I enjoy doing. And I didn't really think about what I was going to do. So like at school, I studied Indonesian because I knew that you went to Bali on an excursion. So that was like how I did all my choices and then when it came to the end doing the HSC I actually did really really well and because I am like someone who puts 110% effort into things so then when I had this TR, TER and I had all these options I was just like oh wow what am I going to do so I actually applied for uni to go do a bachelor um, of science and nutrition because I wanted to be a dietitian at that point because I was really into my health but I deferred uni for three years straight. I had saved a lot of money from my part-time jobs during high school and I went straight over to London because two of my sisters were living there. So I went and travelled first and deferred uni and then I ended up coming back and got a job um, as a PA to a very well-known businessman and it kind of just followed that pathway. So again, no, I had no direction but it all just happened. Okay, that's interesting. So then you didn't end up going through with the university? No, I okay. never went to uni after I um, I was a PA for like three or four years. You may remember FAI Insurances, so Rodney Adler. So I was his PA. So I got thrown straight away as I would have been like a 19-year-old into this world of, you know, every name, you know, the Packers, the Murdochs, they were my everyday people that I was surrounded with. I was this young, naive, you know, not really understanding what was going on, but I think it taught me that opportunities are endless and so that's kind of the pathway and then I left there 
because I decided to go back and travel again, went back to Europe, traveled away. And then I came back and I really had an interest in property. I went and did my real estate license, did real estate for a while, and then went, I love houses, but I'm not into selling them. I loved the power of a house had. I really got connected with that emotive feel that people had when they came into houses. So did real estate, left real estate again, went off traveling yet again, and then came back and I ended up becoming the national marketing manager for VLUX Skylights. So then I ended up in the building industry and that's kind of my pathway through. So it kind of, it's very much like, you know, this windy road to where I've kind of ended up today. I love that because it's so often the way, isn't it, that when you're on that journey, sometimes you have no sense of where on earth it's going to take you. And sometimes you might even question, is this a waste of time? Should I be doing something else? You might look at what other people are doing and the choices that they've made. But then over time and when you look back, you see this all makes sense. Like this is why I am where I am right now. Absolutely. That's like, amazing. Yeah. So it's really interesting to actually take a moment to look back on it. Yeah. And so then how did you then, okay, so then you started to be more immersed in the building industry. Yeah. So I know of you from your past project, which was Soul of Gerangong, which got a lot of publicity and, you know, it was a beautiful home. But what were the steps up until that property? It involves meeting a builder and marrying a builder very much. So, so I met Ben at the same time I was working at Velux. Um, I think we were married like oh, 14 months after we met. And my kind of pathway came, I suppose, through the building and the admin side versus the creative side. So I was working as the marketing manager, but I was really um, invested in building up his business. So I was doing all the marketing side for him, but then I was also typing up all the quotes. So all these years of me sitting there typing up, you know, supply and in-store, RE, blah, 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 like all those details, it just kept sinking in. And during this time, we had started to um, renovate, flip homes, do our own. And then I started just organically helping with client projects and people asking me to be involved. So again, it was Ben. He said, you need to move into this. And I was at that crossroads, which so many of us get to when I had my first child of that corporate ladder or embracing motherhood. And I knew that I couldn't do both. So I left the corporate world, um, became stay-at-home mum, really got more into the business. And Ben bought me, a, it was a course at ISCD and it was a day as a designer. So I thought I was going to go and I was going to meet with an interior designer and she was going to tell me all about how amazing the career was. Instead, that day, it basically let you touch on all different types of design. And most of the day was spent drawing. And I went, no, this took me back to like my school years. And I was like, no, I do not like drawing. This is not like, no. So I did that and it took me three years to go, yeah, you know what, design is for me. And then realized that that part of the career was only one small part, one that I needed to understand to be able to go forward with. So bent that day as a day as a designer worked in two ways. It kind of set me back on really the path that I wanted to go on. But then I went and studied for three years at ISCD. And I say that I I did it the opposite way, which I tend to do with a lot of things where I already knew what I, oh, I knew I could, I knew I had just that vision, you know, the ability for design, but I decided I wanted to know why I knew what I knew and went and studied to kind of do it, to basically match the two up. So, yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I did an interview with Cara and, um, and she mentioned that you guys met there and connected during yeah. that time. So yeah. sometimes that can be one of the great things when you do study is kind of those connections that you meet with people Amazing. you know, along the journey. Yeah. yeah. Like Cara has always been my biggest supporter. And I remember when we started that course and we were both kind of like, is this really for us? Like, because everyone was very new to the industry and we both you know, had our own ways of coming there. And it was those connections as well as like Lisa Cola became my educator. So it was all, again, all these pieces of the puzzle just, you know, started to form together. So then 
how did the the soul of Jerogon come along? So you'd flipped a few homes, yeah. and then and then what happened? So in, before Soul of Jerogon, I had done quite a bit of design work, client work. Um, we'd sold a house in Cronulla where we lived, and it caused quite a stir because um, you know it was actually meant to be our forever home, but yeah, let's just say I don't think we can do forever. So I knew the house was special, but I didn't realize the hype it was going to create. So I got a lot of client work off the back of that. And it was quite interesting because I thought that's what I wanted. And as soon as I started to do quite a lot of client work, I realized it actually was emptying my cup, not filling my cup up. So I knew that doing my own projects was always my number one priority and client work would just be on the side. So we had done that for a while. We'd done another development and we were living our safe, little, happy, gorgeous, like, we had an amazing life like we had a construction company with about 30 guys working for us we were thriving but there was something it was just i don't know there was just something that was still kind of missing and we went to the coastal town of jerangong for a friend's 40th and as i drove in i just saw this old farmhouse and i was just like oh. it just it just caught my eye and then later on, I think it was the next day, I went up with my girlfriends and they wanted to look in the shops. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to go down here. I happened to notice this house. I'm just going to check it out. I walked out the front of the farmhouse and it just felt like for the first time in years, I'd just taken a big breath out. I didn't know what it was. I didn't even realize the property was for sale. And I rung Ben and I said, I've just found us a house to buy. And he's gone, yeah, yeah, right, whatever, because we do that all the time. And I was like, okay, I didn't think much of it. Went back up to, walked back to the main street to meet my friends, looked in the real estate window, and there was that house. It was actually on the market. So I get back on the phone and ring Ben, hey, that house is for sale. We're actually going to buy it. He's still like, yeah, yeah, whatever. So fast forward, we ended up buying the house. We had no, no goal to move from where we lived. No goal at that time to pack up everything we had. But we were just like, you know what? Why not? Why can't we, you know, why can't we do this? Why can't we just not follow the norm? And the one thing that I think drew us to it and drew us to opening accommodation was we knew that when, when together Ben and I work, that we create something special. And we know that when we sell houses, when we're creating them for clients, that people love the feeling we create in houses. But the thing is, we can only ever share it with one family. So we were like, what about if we turn this into accommodation and instead of just being able to, you know, share what we do with one person, we open the doors and we can share it en masse, then how amazing would that be? And that was kind of where it went from. There was no um, business plan, no financial goal. It was just, let's just share, let's give back of what the power that we know it's kind of our skill and the gift that we can give to people. And that was how Soul of Jerangong was created. Yeah. So what I want to ask you about that is, I mean, obviously by that point, you've done a range of different projects. You've probably learned a heap of mm. lessons along the way. And I'm guessing that you've also got a stronger sense of your own personal style, which is something that I know people ask me a lot about. Mm. They really struggle with how to have a clear understanding when they like lots of different styles so do you feel that you had had a stronger sense of your own personal style by the time you got to that project or what, what are your thoughts mm. on that? Like, I believe that every house has its own style and personality. So, you know, it, my style and design has definitely grown up. Like if I think of, you know, the first house we flipped, you kind of go, oh, wow, what was I thinking? But to me, the farmhouse that sold just demanded its own personality and its own style and people always say to me I love your style and I'm like soul's actually not my style what I created there paid homage to that house but was able to create a new um, new type of style and design and standard in accommodation so how I approach it is I'm always about bringing in three styles together so I call it my 70 20 10 rule so I'm like 70% of one style, 20% of another, and then a final 10% that pulls it together. So I always look for those three elements, and but they can be made up. Like I always say to people, they're not technical. 
like I described the Seoul farmhouse as classic coastal rustic. And then that just every decision I made along the way had to fall into that and then work with the proportions. So, yeah, I think I'm very big on every property should not look the same. And that's probably what I strive to do if I'm working on any projects. When someone comes to me, I love Seoul. Can you create that for me? And I'm like, nope. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. We can take inspiration of what you like from it, but it's not going to feel like that house does. So that's how I approach it. Yeah, I I have a very similar approach Mm. in the sense that I really believe you have to respond to the existing architecture. You've got to respond to the the location of the home as well, as well as like your own personal Mm. story, because, you know, we all bring different elements to it and things that feel right for us. And you've got to really tap into that. So what feels rustic for you might feel different. You know, someone else has got a very different idea of what rustic means. So, you know, it's that kind of idea. Yeah. Um, So what were some of the big lessons then you learned with that project? Mm, I think the first one is to A, back yourself. You know, what happened with Solar Jaringob was I'd always done my work and I hadn't really put myself out there. So I was always happy for houses to do the talking and, you know, I was the back end of it. So as the more people started to recognise this property and we started to follow along the journey, I did start to kind of second guess myself. So I did have to kind of have some pep talks to be like, you know what, you've got this, just do what you normally do. So that was definitely a big lesson for me. Number two is definitely understand what is important and what's your priority because like any project renovation build everything goes over budget and you always come to a a a decision where even though you might love that I don't know if it's those antique brass taps but the decision is being able to finish the build there's always sacrifices so really understanding what's important to be able to bring the whole feeling together in a house and then number three is always to me the lesson I learnt in that build is just you know what just go for it sometimes you just got to go you know what I'm just it's different to second guessing yourself but we definitely got to the position of going we have put so much in this property imagine if like if this doesn't turn out and we just remember you know we got to the end you know of the bank account and just going oh Okay, let's just do it because if we do it half-hearted, that's what the result's going to be. So let's just go for it, hope for the best, you know, prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. So that was definitely a big, big learning. Yeah. And what about in terms of, can you share some insights into your like design process of, of how you approach it? I know everyone's very different. Yeah, yeah. I, I always believe like, you know, it's back to our mood boards, vision boards. But I always, always start with a mood board. And I think that people miss this step a lot because to me, the mood board is understanding the feeling and because feeling's everything for me in a property and I believe it should be for everyone. So starting with the mood board that really makes you understand what you're trying to create, that is always step one for me. Then step two is going on to, um, you know, your design board and that's now really starting to bring in the textures and the elements and kind of a little bit of more of, you know, how the space is going to look. Then I go into spatial planning because to me, spatial planning would be just under a feeling of a property. And, you know, one of the things I would say is definitely my area of expertise is understanding that. So really understanding how the space is going to be used, how it's going to function, you know, if it's someone's home or the holiday property where are people going to um, gravitate to? Where are they going to gather? What are the spaces that need to have, like, you know, that's got to have the priority? Knowing that if I need to move a wall by 300 mil at that stage, it's so easy on paper versus when it's built going, oops, got that one wrong. So the spatial planning is a big, big step. Then I move into the spec board. So then that's our actual finishes now. So once I've got that, then, you know, back onto a lot of the computer work. But that's how I approach every single project. And if I ever miss one of those steps, I can see that it's not my best work. So they're kind of my four steps that I would do as a design process. 
And lots of people who listen to this podcast, they're kind of on the beginning of their journey of creating homes and, you know, going on that process. So can you share like, so what do you literally use like programs and yeah, Yeah. sort of the techie side? Yeah. Well, you know what? I keep tech as simple as possible because often as designers, we have it all in our head. So yeah, it's about making a beautiful mood board, but really... I would prefer to spend my time on the actual project. So I use PowerPoint for mood boards. It's so simple. I used to use InDesign, but I was like, I can use PowerPoint and it's like quarter of the time compared to InDesign. So that's where I'm going to go. PowerPoint, SketchUp is what I use for floor planning, spatial planning, my models. And I can use SketchUp, but again, I will outsource that because it's not my area of expertise. So I can do you know, a draft one, and then I'd prefer to give it, I do have a junior designer that works for me, but before I had her, I'd outsource it because I would go, is that an efficient use of my time first getting someone else to do it? Um, and then I literally used Word and Excel. That is it. No, yeah. like just keeping it as simple as possible. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. And so obviously a big part of the soul of Jeringong process was turning it into an Airbnb. And I know that you have now kind of created courses and sort of a whole community around that. What were some of the big lessons you learned about that, about, you know, Airbnb being a property? You know what, what I learned at the time, there was no resources. So I remember once we had our vision and yes, we're going to take over the South Coast and create this accommodation. I was like, well, we know how to design. We know how to build. We don't know anything about holiday properties rather than being a guest at so many so we knew what we liked but I thought that I could turn to Google and it would give me all the answers or I'd find you know a course that I could sign up and there was nothing and I was like wow like I'm pretty much on my own here so I reached out to a lot of amazing people and most of them up here in Byron who were very giving with their information like Talia Lowry from Byron Beach Abodes at the time and I can't remember her name but she created Baskin Stow and she gave me some amazing information I remember right at the time I was going but I'm like my accommodation's not Byron and she was like yeah but that is your biggest asset because if you do this right people will find you then they'll find Jeringon we're in Byron they find Byron and they have to find us so that was like a light bulb moment went off for me but yeah that's what I found with creating like I actually don't call it Airbnb I believe that we don't need to sit under a brand nothing against Airbnb but that's why I've got the nickname we use in our community HPOs holiday property owners and because it's so diverse so I believe as HPOs you know we're all individual and that's like setting up the accommodation it is it's a business so many people just think, oh, I'll create this, you know, beautiful home and open my doors and see you later where I teach people and what I learnt and, you know, the costly way as well is I'm a CEO, I'm the accounts person, I'm the marketing person, I'm the customer service, you are everything. So once you work out where your strengths and weaknesses are, then that's when you work out what you need to outsource because, again, for some people they can do it all. But I also believe if you set this up as a business model, because to me, holiday properties are about, you know, creating a lifestyle you don't need a holiday from. So and a lot of people have them so they don't have to work that nine to five job or, you know, if there's such a thing as passive income. So it's about knowing what you need to hand over and knowing that when your guests arrive, that they're expecting a well polished business, you know, a home that feels amazing and there's all different expectations based on price points, but it's a business they're turning up to. And just the same as if they were turning up at a hotel, they're all the things that you really need to know that setting up a holiday property, it is a business. Yeah. Yeah. No, so true. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about then? So you decided to sell Soul of Jeringong, yeah. which was, it was during COVID, wasn't it? Oh my goodness. It was. <laughs> you know what? We, so right from the beginning, we knew we'd sell solar Jeringong. So we were like, let's create this business. Let's set a new standard of accommodation. Let's share it. But we also knew that we don't do forever. So we were like, let's build it up. Let's see if we can create a brand. Let's create a profitable business with the goal to sell it. So it was always in the back of our head when. So we picked the perfect timing. We thought we'd blocked out 
six months earlier a month of weekends, which because we were so heavily booked. We've got a month to do open houses. Oh, this is going to be amazing. And the first open we had was just when we weren't in complete lockdown, but it was, you know, I think days away. We had one open house, you know, so many people through. And then we still could have had the second open, but I just went, no, we live in this tiny little town. There's all these people from Sydney coming in. I had these visions of the whole town hunting me down. So, yeah, we were meant to have our big marketing campaign. Instead, it went the other way. We pulled it. We didn't pull it off the market, but we just let it sit idle. And we closed down the accommodation business, which nearly every other person did. So we went from having this, oh, my goodness, we're going to sell our business to, wow, that didn't go well. Here we are with a closed business. And we also found ourselves building another accommodation business whilst not knowing what was going on. So if we fast forward, got out of COVID and really it actually worked in our favour because we had a group of people, like about three or four, who just kept saying, when can we come through? When can we see Seoul? So if anything, it kind of kept the anticipation going. So as soon as people could come back down, we weren't doing opens. We let two people through the house. Both of them wanted to buy it. At the end of the day, um, yeah, people bought it. And yeah, it's only settled like two weeks ago. We only handed it over. So it's very, very recent. So wow. yeah, yeah. So. so how did you feel about letting go of that? Because that's something that people sort of struggle with as well or knowing yeah. when to let go. Yeah, well, the second part, knowing when to let go, that was a challenge because we, you know, yes, six months ago we set the date. But if I'm honest, every year we're like, okay, do we sell? Do we sell? Do we sell? And there was just something telling us it wasn't the right timing. Actually selling it and handing it over, it's probably one of the only properties I've actually been okay at handing over because I feel like to me, when I create these houses and especially because this property basically created my brand and it allowed people to know who I am, it gave me a platform and probably put my design work on the map. I felt like the property had given me so much. And so I think of houses like babies. So I feel like, you know, this baby had grown up, it was nurtured and it was time for it to go out to the big wide world because I still love that property, but I'd probably fallen out of love with it. And it was time for someone to hand it over to someone who, you know, didn't maybe have the work goggles on that I call like I did. So I actually found it, um, I found it quite easy. And I think the reason is, one of my visions was create this business, create this place everyone can come and share and on sell it to someone who will continue with the brand and the business. And I didn't have control over that because the other person who was interested in purchasing it, they were going to use it as their holiday home. So it wasn't going to be a business. So the fact that it's still continuing on, it doesn't feel like it's left because it's still like it's out there in the world. So I don't really think I've had had to really disconnect from it. So it was actually really easy yeah and then in the meantime you've sort of been doing this other project which is called the pause is that that's also in Gerringong is it yeah. or south coast Gerringong yeah it's literally on the back fence of solar Gerringong oh really I yeah. didn't realize that most people don't and I probably did that as a business decision at the time um so it's a subdivision down there because it's on like just under half an acre and we that block of land was originally going to be part of Seoul and we were like, no, no, let's just hang on to that because at one stage we're going to do a duplex and it just it just didn't sit right. Like our financial heads should have done the duplex like years ago. We should have lived in it whilst we we're building all this. But there was just something like we just didn't want to do it. And so we had this block of land and we were like, well, we can still create a property there. And because we've left the town, we wanted a place that we can go back to. So and excuse the pun, but we want a place where we can go and pause. And we're like, let's just create it. Let's see what happens. Kind of went down the same path as Seoul. And yeah, it's completely different to Seoul, but yeah, literally next door. So that was a new build, was it? Brand new build. Yeah. 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 And have you done new builds before or okay. So yeah. that was familiar. Yeah. We do like, it's probably a mix of renos and new builds. And I personally prefer renovations over new builds because I find renovations more, um, they're more challenging or not even challenging, but you've got to be like 
really think about, oh, how can I make it work? You know, you're governed by the walls or the space where new builds is like, well, really, you can make anything work if you get like, if you're strategic with it. So it's, yeah, renos, I think I just find more, they're more fulfilling for me. But this new build was actually really, it was almost like I had my reno brain on because it's only on a 450 square meter block, yet it can accommodate 12 guests. So if you think of the pause is like a Bali villa, doesn't, you know, it's not the Bali villa facade, but you know, you've been to Bali, like it's bigger houses, smaller yards, but it's all open plan living and it's just got that holiday vibe. So yeah, it was, it actually, I even look back and go, wow, the pause, it really feels like it's, you know, an abundance of space. So that spatial planning did come into play there. So how did you approach then the style of the home? Because you were saying before that you're often really guided by the, the home itself and, and how that dictates the style. So then when you've got that blank canvas, how mm -hmm. do you go about sort of creating the style and the look? Well, again, I went back to the feeling. So I wanted to create this property to be a place where I could come, guests could come and just feel like instantly as soon as they arrive that they can just take a big breath out and they just feel calm. So straight away, my 70-20-10 was organic, minimalist and classic. So, you know, when you open the doors at the pause, we've got these gorgeous antique timber doors, it's concrete flooring and there's just this one brass light, that's it. So it's just... The styling was everything was less is more, but had to have feeling. And the, I was able to do that with, like with all the materials I had in them. I wanted them to feel like they'd always been there, that they weren't brand new and shiny. So I think that was the big key and why if I use my 70, 20, 10, the organic was a big part of that property. So another thing I wanted to ask you about, which I think you're really good at, is using social media. Obviously, that's a huge part of the success of Soul of Joingong and getting the name out there is a huge part of if you've got a holiday home that you want to promote and so on. So what what is your strategy in terms of how you show up on social media? I always feel like you are very intentional about what you share and you're really clear on what you want to share. It comes across very kind of confident and that you, um, you know, in a very friendly way, yeah. and, you know, nothing yeah. to say <laughs> to that. Um, but it, yeah, you just seem to have this very clear sense of how you choose to show up. Can you yeah. talk about that? Thank you for that. Because you know what, sometimes when you're putting things on social media, you don't know how people portray it. So that definitely has um, filled my cup up, you saying that. I think with social media, my strategy with it is I want to I want to provide solutions to challenges for people versus going on there with a challenge of like, you know, instead of going, oh, my God, like it's so hard doing this build or, oh, my goodness, which one do I pick if it's a material or coming to a holiday property like quick, there's only one more, you know, weekend. I don't want it to be like that. I want it to be, you know, I've gone through a challenge which for me in the space I'm in is obviously design, build, holiday properties. And, you know, I have 20 years of that, so it's quite easy to come up with content. And the solution, so if I think about, you know, if I'm, I'm talking about this next build we're doing and I'm like, so I'm going to share the process of how I start. So I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and that's how you can do it. So I try to get into the emotion the people are feeling and know that like-minded people or people are approaching it and don't have the resources that I have, that if I can create content that puts that out in a really simple, clear and authentic manner, that they're going to relate to it. And to me, social media is like, I wouldn't have a business and a brand without it. So I have so much to owe to it. And I've met so many amazing people who are now my friends in it, but I don't, I, really don't like social media to be a highlight reel. And I, yes, if you look on my feed, it's all very pretty and curated photos, but I do try to mix them up with real um, photos that I've taken as well, because I know that we all can struggle by comparing ourselves with others. So my intention with anything I post on social media and the people I connect with is that they never want to feel like they compare themselves to me. And if someone can learn something and take something away, 
my job is done and that's why I'll keep showing up. If I, I'll give you permission, if I ever switch and I start not doing that, then that's my time to leave social media. That's kind of how I really try to approach it as much as I can. Yeah. And so um, what about in terms of, again, getting nitty gritty, like do you um, schedule your posts in advance? Do you, like what, what's your strategy in terms of actually how you use it? Do you use filters? Do you, like what, you yeah. Know, no again you know how i say i just things just tend to happen no planning i did try and use you know the program later i actually really didn't like it i'm that person and it's not good from a personal point of view because i know that i'm on my phone too much but if i'm just like oh i have to post it then and there it's and i think maybe that's the connection people get from me because i'm actually feeling it something's just come there is no plan even like the sponsored series we just did with the pause i had it outsource the social media for about a week of it and it just was not it wasn't right the right messaging wasn't coming across and i just went you know what i just have to do this i have to post it so no there's no no planning i wish there was like a secret to it but to me that's how it will come back authentic the messaging so yeah do you ever know not know what to say then I won't post. So yeah. if I don't have, cause like I'm posting because I choose to post. And if I don't have something to post, then I just like, I won't post it. You know, of course there's some times when I've gone, no, no, quickly post it, no, delete it. But if I don't, I don't have to post. So I'm like, I don't feel like I have to show up every single day. Yes, it was difference in the sponsored series, but I actually felt like, um, I wanted to show up because I had all these amazing brands behind me. So I actually felt like I wanted to share why I love these products. So I didn't even feel forced in that time. So yeah, it's always, it's always because I feel it. And if I don't feel it, then I won't go on there. Mm. And um, also what I wanted to ask you about in relation to that is, so Obviously you said before that you would get people doing, you were doing client work and I'm sure that you get lots and lots of people asking you to do client work for you, given the projects that you have created. So do you do that now or do you still want to just focus on your own thing? And then how do you say no or how do you work out what you want to do and what's most important for you? Yeah, um, I'm really bad at saying no. So I'm trying to get better at that to go, you know what? Not yet. I find if I use that, it's a lot easier than just going no. But yes, so I do do client work. So at the minute, I have five client projects on the go and we've just got our, we've just purchased a house. So we've got our own one, which will make it six. And that to me is too much. Um, as I said before, I've got a junior designer who works for me. So the result of having that many clients is because I actually love the projects and I fall in love with houses and the people. And then I'm like, oh, because I can just see it. But it's not, I've had a few meetings with my business coach to go, I love client work, but it, it actually just leaves me so empty. And I feel like it steals my time away from my family. And, you know, more often than not, Ben and I are on a project together. So it also steals our dinner conversations as well so as much as you're sitting there saying so tell me about your day you're like oh and by the way so that's a real boundary issue so I think that's kind of where the client you know focus comes in so going forward I'm not going to say no to clients I'm just going to hold space for one or two clients only per year and if it's not the right fit or I don't have the space it's going to be a straight no because I've learned from really getting burnt out and like, you know, having the ups and downs with my mental health that it's not actually good for me in the long run. So client work will be to a minimum. Um, we're doing our own project and we want to be able to do another holiday project, you know, in the next two years. And then with online education. So I've, as you said before, I've got my online guide for holiday property owners. I've got um, a guide coming out on how to think like a designer and then one on how to work with your builder and styling made easy. So I really love online education because 
probably like you, I love writing and it wasn't something that I thought that would come natural to me. But if I'm like prioritizing my week of work, yes, my client work comes first and the business side of things. But really, I'm like, I just want to get all that done because I want to write because I've got so much in my head that I know that I can give to people to help them. But I can, if I'm only helping one person, kind of like how we created Solar Gerangon to share on mass. So if I can share these tips and tricks and these amazing resources that I have, and I can share them on mass with people in a way that doesn't drain me, but by sharing fills my cup up. So that's kind of where I am. So in a long way, yes, there's design work, but it will be on the minimum. We have our accommodation businesses and then the online education and kind of sponsors and brand things going forward is definitely more the main direction. So I'm, gonna, I'm curious, I'm going to ask you one last question before we get into yeah. the sort of quick Q&A. So you mentioned that you're working with a business coach. So what, like, why, I guess? And also yeah. what are some of the things that you've learnt through that process? Business coach is amazing because they keep you on track. So you know if you're with a friend, a colleague, and you're like, hey, I've got this idea, and they're like, yeah, that sounds amazing, you should do that. They always back you, but have they put really the time and thought that you're wanting. So I find with a business coach, they go, yep, that's all great, but no, you don't have space for it. So all these ideas, we're going to park over here. This is the one we're going to work on. And they basically make you step it down, keep you accountable. So to me, it's a way for me to probably set boundaries with a business coach. And the business coach I'm with is Megan Dalla Kamina. And she's very, um, very in tune with her feminine side. And you probably pick up on it, but I'm very more masculine focused. And I always thought I'd have a male business coach. And she has a way of like just getting me to really think in my feminine side versus making all my decisions from the masculine way. And she just softens everything. Yet she is, you know, corporate ex IBM, like, but I don't know, she just has a, they keep you on track is what I would say. And that's why I always recommend to people if they're in that space, they will tell you what you don't necessarily want to hear. Friends and family tell you, yeah, that's amazing. You can do anything. Like, you know, if I ask my mom, oh, of course you can, darling. Everything's possible. So I think they really give you honest, true um, advice and direction. So, yeah. I love that. Mm. I'm going to have to investigate oh, that. You, should, you would actually be really, and she um, does online education as well. So uh, I was up here in Byron two weeks ago staying at Atlantic and Megan was up there at the same time and I was running content and then we have um, check-in time. So if you ever get to that stage where you're like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I'm not the person to do this. You'll go have your session and you're like, I've got this. Yep, I can take over the world. So, yeah, really, really good. You'll have to give me her contact details so I can put it in the show notes. Yes. All right. So as I uh, mentioned, I've got some quick Q&As that we go through at the end of every episode. The first question is always the one that people struggle with the most. But nevertheless, I think you've got this. I'm confident (laughs) with you, Simone. (laughs) Which five words best describe you? Okay, I'm. Definitely passionate, determined, a risk taker. I'll say inspiring because I know that people get inspired by what I do and giving because there's nothing more that I love than being able to give to other people. What's the best life or career lesson you've learned? This one comes from my good friend Lisa Messenger. I don't even know what book it was in. But there was something about, you know, whenever you're making a decision and you're scared and you got that fear, always go jump off the cliff. So if that's worst case scenario, if you can cope and deal with that, then you can always work backwards and imagine if you fly. So, yeah. What's your proudest career achievement? I think it would have to be solar Derringong, you know, just knowing that. I've been able to have, in my own little way, impact on people's lives by being able to share the space. What's been your best decision? Packing up from Sydney and moving to Jerangong. Who inspires you? There's, um, can I have a couple? I'm always like, can I just have one more? Um, Lisa Messenger, she definitely, um, you know, now we're friends, but along this journey before I met her, her books always just gave me that inspiration that 
I wasn't, um, I suppose the word's weird, I wasn't weird that I didn't want to fit into that nine to five life. So she inspired me to, you know, dream bigger. And then from an accommodation side, I stumbled across would have been right at the beginning when Atlantic opened, Kimberly Amos's story in Inside Out magazine. And so she's always been an inspiration, you know, watching what she's done and how she's been able to create such a magical feeling and keep that going for so many years. What are you passionate about? Freedom. Everything's freedom for me, like my values. If I feel stuck or, you know, tied into something, it just doesn't fit right. So everything I do, it's got to give me freedom. What dream do you still want to fulfill? I would love to buy an old hotel and do it up and have that as my business. What are you reading at the moment? Oh, my client's book, Taria Pitt, Happy. It's a really good book and I'm reading it, almost finished. I'm going to give it to all my children as well. Um, yeah. And what are you currently listening to? I know you said earlier on that you listen to a lot of podcasts, so can you share some of them? Your podcast. Oh, I've been listening you. to yours. It's, and you ask the right questions because there's a lot of people on there that I already know their story, but I've learned so much by listening to theirs. So your podcast, you're doing a really good job. Oh, thank you. Um, what piece of advice would you give to your younger self? Mm. I said this to my children today when they're like, when are we going home? What time's the aeroplane tomorrow? Live for today. You know, not living for yesterday, not for tomorrow, live for today. Great. Now I'm going to ask one last little one <laughs> because I realise I haven't asked it. And I do think it's something that, you know, you're a mum of it's four boys. Oh, boys. How do you juggle that kind mm. of, um, I know some people hate using the word work-life yeah. balance, but I actually think that, you do have to find some kind of harmony or flow between those two states. How do you negotiate that with yourself and with life? And Yeah, you know what? I think it, to me, it's like there's this work-life balance, but they're never level. They're never like even, you know, if you think, you know, bananas on one end, apples on the other. So I go, if I'm really deep in work or a project or I'm writing an online course, or I've got a client that I have to finish this, then my head is in work and my family, we've got this understanding that, well, mum has to do this work for you guys. I'm not going to be home when you get home from school and you can cook dinner and you can, you know, do all the washing. But then as soon as that changes and something happens with the kids or there's something, you know, um, Tally who's in your fives trying out for school captain. So I'm like, right. I'm on because I've really got to um, pay my attention with the kids. So to me, it's just about it's not balanced all at one time. Something is your priority and you're going to give your time to that. And then as soon as you finish that, you go back and then pay your attention to more the family personal side. Yeah, yeah, that's a big part. And now at the moment you've been enjoying some family time, so yes. which is really great. Yeah, it has been. It's good. Thank you so much for sharing some time with me on this, um, this little holiday that you've had. I'm so glad that we were able to sneak in a little bit of time. It's been so lovely to hear more about your journey. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for coming and meeting in person finally. All right, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this interview and learning more about Simone's creative journey. Before you go, if you haven't done so already, can you please take a moment to subscribe, rate and review this podcast? It really does help get the word out to other people who also might find it helpful. You'll find show notes for this episode at nataliewalton.com forward slash podcast forward slash 31 because this is episode 31. Thank you to Jaeger Media for producing this podcast and the people of the Bundjalung Nation where it was recorded. I look forward to connecting again soon. I'm Natalie Walton and you've been listening to Imprint. <laughs>